I woke up this morning, and out my window, my azaleas and forsythia are in full bloom. And I felt hope well up in my heart. Spring always does this to me. It restores my soul as I think about the promise of warm summer days and the renewing greening of the world. Hope is a wonderful thing, isn't it? We ever considered how important it is to our life on a daily basis. Think hope is what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's a new day. Hope is what allows us to ask someone else on an, out on a date. Maybe this is the one. Hope is what drives us to plant bulbs in the fall and seedlings in the spring. Maybe this year the squirrels won't eat all my strawberries. They probably will. But maybe not. That's why we keep hoping. We keep hoping. But you know, hope is helpful in the day-to-day. But it's also the thing that by many accounts gets us through the hardest things of life as well, isn't it? Martin Luther King, in the face of entrenched racism in America, the apparent setbacks of the civil rights movement, wrote this. Even in the inevitable moments when all seem hopeless, men know that without hope, they cannot really live in an agonizing desperation. They cry for the bread of hope. Or listen to the words of Nurse Grace Chuhuayan Chi, who writes in her paper The Role of Hope in Patients with Cancer. Overall, hope is probably the single most important element in the lives of patients and family members struggling with the diagnosis of cancer. Therefore, enabling and maintaining a sense of hope in patients with cancer are essential for assisting them in battling illness. And how important hope is when facing the most terrible things of this world as well. Listen to the words of Meyer Hirsch, a survivor of the death camp in Auschwitz. If there is only a spark left in you, then you have to cling to it. A person can survive for a few days without eating, but he can't survive without hope for more than a minute. I think if we're honest, we recognize that hope is one of the most important things and I think that if I could sit with you for a cup of coffee, you would say, yes, I want hope. And yet hope is hard to hold on to, isn't it? Just as I woke up this morning and seemed there was the promise of sunshine to bless our flowers and make them pretty, it rained. My hope was doused a little bit. Of course, there are much more serious things that douse our hope as well. We get overwhelmed with the evil and suffering in this world, even in our own city. We despair of ourselves, the ways that we are unable to be better than we actually are. And in our fight for hope, we we see the danger of empty optimism. We don't want to be fools. So easily we fall into cynicism, building walls in our hearts against the vulnerability of hope. So in this reality, our need for hope, 
and also the challenge that it is to hold on to, we face this question. How can we find hope? A hope that we can hold on to. Well, friends, the good news is, it's Easter. And this is exactly what the message of Easter speaks to us about this morning. We're going to look in the book of Luke, chapter 24, starting in verse 13. That's on page 831 in your view Bible. If you want to turn there with me, uh, we're going to... This is a continuation of the passage that Megan read earlier. Um, that Jesus Christ, having been crucified on a cross by the Romans on Friday... Um, the, the narrative that turns to Sunday morning. Some of his dear friends went to the tomb. They found that his body was not there. We're not going to focus on that account this morning. We're actually going to pick up some other followers of Jesus who, in despair after three days, were walking away from Jerusalem. And we want to look at them and on their road, their journey to Emmaus, and on their journey to hope. So let's read this passage together. Luke chapter 14, starting in, I'm sorry, chapter 24, starting in verse 13. Let's read this together. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as women had said. But him, they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We pray for you. Lord, as we come to this word this morning, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us, Lord. Help us to hear and receive, Lord, the word of hope that you have for us in this passage. Help us to, Lord, fight against the despair that creeps into our hearts. Lord, we pray this morning, that your word would be clear to us, Lord, that you would help me to proclaim it as I ought, and that we would all have hearts ready to receive what you have for us today in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How can we find a hope that we can hold on to? In this passage, we see two things. First of all, we see why we lose hope, the dynamics of our hearts, and the things that make it so hard for hope to hold on to. Secondly, we see where hope can be gotten, hope that we can hold on to, hope that we cannot lose. So let's look first at why we lose hope. And in order to do this, let's just look at the story of these disciples. The first thing you see about them is that they are leaving Jerusalem. They are leaving the place where Jesus died. They are not waiting around. They have no anticipation that anything is going to happen. They are walking off the pitch in defeat. They believe that there is nothing more to stay in Jerusalem for. And so they are walking away. And it's clear as Jesus appears and comes alongside of them, even though they don't know who he is, they don't recognize him for who he is, yet he comes alongside and engages them. And when he asks them what they're talking about, they're sad, downcast. And he asks them why. He says, because this man, Jesus, we thought he was the one sent from God. We have been with him. We have seen him do amazing things. You go back and read the Gospel of Luke. They've seen him raise the dead, heal the blind, feed the multitudes. They've seen him proclaim righteousness and love the outcast and the lonely and the sinners. They thought he was the one that God had sent to finally redeem them. To finally restore the nation of Israel so that they might be a place where God is truly worshipped and where the blessing of God overflows into the world. We had hoped. Past tense. We had hoped. He was going to be the one who would redeem the world. They walking away because not what they saw. He did not come and conquer and redeem. He was destroyed 
crucified, defeated. They lost hope because they thought this cannot be God's plan. This cannot be what God is doing. It's not supposed to end this way in defeat and shame and suffering and death. The Redeemer was supposed to bring glory and renewal and life. They lost hope because they felt like they did not understand what God was doing. They could not understand God's plan. Not only that, though, as the passage goes on, they've also heard these accounts. The women and then Peter went to the tomb and came back and said, he's not there. And the reports that they had heard from this vision is that he was alive. But if you look at the end of verse 24, as they're wrestling with this, as they're recounting it to Jesus, what's their conclusion? Him, they did not see. You see, they hadn't just lost a political ideal. They hadn't just lost a movement, a social movement. They hadn't just lost a vision of a new life. They had lost a person. They put their hope in this Jesus. This one that they traveled with and eaten with. They put their hope in this person. And now he was gone. They didn't know where he was. Him, they did not see. Having known him and loved him, they were crushed. He was not there. Jesus, where are you? How could you abandon us? How could you die like this? Not only did they not understand God's plan, they felt like they had lost God himself. I think that we often struggle with hope in similar ways. Of course, it's easy to be hopeful when things are going well. When things are turning out right, when the things we set our hands to seem to be reasonably successful and meaningful, and these things are wonderful. We should rejoice in those seasons, just like we rejoice when the flowers bloom in the spring. Rejoice when we see these good times and be thankful for them. But the true test of our hope is not seeing them. The true test of our hope is seen in adversity and trial. I have sat with some of you in the past week, grieving the loss of loved ones. I have sat with some of you as you face a serious, potentially chronic or terminal illness. I have sat with some of you try to pick up the pieces of a marriage shattered by sin and hurt. These are the things that grind the hope away. And sometimes it's not just the massive crises that erode our hope. Sometimes it's the everyday, the everyday mundaneness of life that dashes our hopes and dreams of something the daily grind of little disappointments. And you know, in the face of these things, 
part of the reason it's so confusing is because at least as we look at the God of the Bible, he seems to be a sovereign God who is good. That is, he has all power and his intentions are meant to be good for us. When we experience a life that feels like it's not good, when it feels like his plan is incomprehensible, when it feels like he is far away, we lose hope. We lose hope when we can't understand what God is doing. We lose hope when we don't know if God is with us. In these times, we feel like maybe evil will have the final say in this world. That we should just eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we will die. And lose hope. So we, like the disciples, often find ourselves asking the question, in the midst of this, all the reasons why it's hard to keep hope. Where do we find the hope? Where do we find the hope that we desperately need? The good news is that, friends, it's Easter Sunday morning. When God steps in, He is able to show us a hope that we cannot lose. Of course, God has already stepped in in this passage. He's come alongside these disciples, and I don't know if you've thought about this, but it's a very ironic conversation for, from 13 to 24, because he's coming alongside these disciples who are wrestling with what happened to Jesus, where did he go, why did these things happen, and then, you know, the word they talk about, he says they were talking with each other, it's actually a word of debate or a sort of uh, intense discussion. So they're going back and forth trying to figure this out. And then he comes along and looks clueless. Hey, what's going on? What are you talking about? And they're like, don't you know about Jesus? And of course he's sitting there and saying, yeah, I know a little bit about him. Uh, actually, I am him. And I do know these things. And they're like, we don't know what happened to him, but this is what we know. And he's like, yeah, I know what happened to him, but I'm, I'm... Graciously, he engages with them in this conversation. And then in verse 25, he begins his response. Look with me at this. Let's read this together. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As Jesus responds to their confusion, as Jesus responds to their sense of lostness, he first steps in to help them understand God's plan. They think that the death of Jesus could not have been God's plan. The place where they are at right now, there is no way that this is what God intended. But Jesus steps in and says, actually, this is exactly the plan. This is the plan that the prophets foretold. And by the prophets, it's a generic term. He's saying this is what the whole Old Testament was pointing ahead to. He said that this is in fact the very weave and the warp and woof of the Old Testament story. What God is doing in the world is that the Christ, God's anointed one who would come to be the Redeemer, that he would suffer. 
and then enter into His glory. That this is in fact not an aberration from God's plan, but it is God's plan. And it's so striking to us because we want Him to just fix it and get us out of the suffering immediately. That's what we think, and that's what they wanted Jesus to do. Come into Jerusalem on a white horse with an angelic army and reestablish the kingdom and bring the victory and bring the freedom. But Jesus says, no, do you not understand? It is necessary. It is necessary for Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. Why is this? Let me zoom out for a minute to tell you a little bit about the big picture of the Bible and how it all fits together so you can get a taste. I wish I was there. I would love to hear this sermon. I would love to be walking with Jesus for these three hours on the road to Emmaus and hear Him explain the Old Testament and what God was doing and how all of this pointed to Him. But we don't have that. So I'm going to try to approximate maybe some things that He said in hopes that you might be able to see how this fits together. You see, because the Bible tells us a story that in the beginning God created a world, a world that was perfectly good in every way, and in the center of it He created humanity to live in fellowship with God and enjoying His creation, where we would live under His rule, receiving from Him all that we need and want, and that it was very good. And this is the world that our soul remembers and longs for. This is when the taste of goodness, even in this broken world, remind us of what it was supposed to be. But then the Bible says that humanity in our pride and in our foolishness rebelled against God and rejected this place of receiving from God all these good things. We as humanity exalted ourselves and said we want to be God ourselves and in doing so we refused God. Sin entered the world. And everything was broken. Because of our rebellion, corruption spread throughout. Nothing was not tainted by sin. Nothing maintained the fullness of its original goodness. Everything was subject to corruption and decay and death. But the Bible says that this is not the end of the story. This is only the first three chapters of the Bible, so we'll go faster, I promise. So as we keep going, right... God then enters into the world in love with a plan that he had determined before the beginning of creation that he would rescue a people for himself. That he would not abandon this creation that he made to corruption and decay, but he would rescue it and redeem it. But that he would rescue it and redeem it through suffering. Let me show you in some of the lives of the key players in the Old Testament how this played itself out. In Genesis, the patriarch Abraham, the beginning, the father of the nation of Israel, was given this grand promise that he would be the father of a great nation, both population-wise and location-wise. There would be a place where God's people would dwell, a multitude of people whereby God would display His glory and bless the world. Abraham received this promise and then lived the rest of his life as a nomad, living in tents, and for most of his life as a childless father. Only at the end of his life did God begin to give him a taste of the fulfillment of that promise. 
he suffered before he got a foretaste of the glory of the fulfillment of the promise. He did. He got a plot of land to lay his wife's body. And he got one son who would be the child of promise. But he suffered before he entered into glory. So similarly, Moses, you remember Moses, the child who was brought up in, in Pharaoh's household, seemingly positioned to be a great deliverer, and yet, as he attempts to step into that role, what happens? He is rejected, refused, threatened, and sent off into exile. He spends 40 years in the backside of nowhere, tending smelly sheep, wondering what in the world God is doing. And at the end of that period, God appeared to him and called him and used him to be the one, the instrument through which God would deliver his people from slavery in Egypt and bring them out of that land. Think about David. King David, who was, as a child, anointed by the prophet Samuel, who said, I'm going to come. I'm going to anoint you as the king. You're now the one that God has chosen. And yet what happens to him? He spends the next 15, 20 years of his life running, a renegade from the city king who in his jealousy and pride refused to see God's plan. David's anointed, David, the anointed king, spent years running away seeking to preserve his life before he was able to ascend to the throne that God had promised him. And even then, as great as David's kingdom was, there was a taste of glory, yet not the fulfillment. Finally, think through the story of the nation of Israel. David's reign began a long time when they actually did live in the land and had the uh, had had a place and had the people and they had a capital, Jerusalem, and they had a temple. This was where they worshipped God the way He had told them to. And yet in their sin and in their fallenness, they continued to rebel and sin against God. And in His judgment, He brought invasion. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians overran the land. They destroyed Jerusalem and they tore down the temple and they stole the implements of worship from the, from the temple. The nation of Israel spent 70 years in exile, suffering, wondering, God, is this your plan? God, where are you? And you can keep going and look at this. Whether it be lambs in the sacrificial uh, system of the law, whether it be Isaac being offered up on a on an altar, whether it be Noah spending months on a really smelly ark that was not a pleasure cruise. Don't be fooled. Um, Noah suffered as he was rescued from, from the judgment. To Joseph, to Ruth, and others, the Old Testament tells us God's plan of redemption is not simply from suffering by snapping his fingers and making it all right. It is through suffering but then God redeems his people. And of course, all of this is meant to prepare the world to understand rightly 
What happens when Jesus Christ comes? For Jesus comes. He suffers in his life the humility of being a human being. He suffers hunger, thirst, and weariness. And most of all, he suffers on the cross as he bears our sins. And we think, how can this be the place? How can this be God's plan? Good news is that he did not simply suffer, but he rose from the dead. Through his suffering, then he would bring glory, not only for himself, but for us. Jesus says in verse 26, Was it not necessary? It was necessary. Why? Because only by suffering along with us in His incarnation can Jesus redeem us from suffering. Only by bearing our sin on the cross is Jesus able to secure for us the forgiveness of sin. Only by His dying for us did Jesus bestow upon us eternal life. Only by rising from the dead can He ascend to glory, defeating sin and death, and promise to take us there. Only by rising from the dead can God accomplish the renewal of all things, whereby He's going to rescue this world from the fallenness and the brokenness and the corruption of sin, and promise that one day as He fully applies this to this world, He will make the world new. Creation itself will be remade, and we will be in a renewed better than a city where we will dwell with God forever. And the glory that we long for, the glory that we had will be surpassed by the glory that we have forever with Him. Do you see then why this is such good news? The disciples don't know what God's plan is. And Jesus comes along and says, do you not see this is everything that I've been leading up to. And the life and death of resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the keystone. It is the centerpiece. All of history has been leading up to it. And all of history after it is the playing out of what happens during this pivotal moment in history. You would come and rescue us from sin and brokenness things that threaten to steal our hope. And friends, this is where we find a hope that cannot be lost. You're sitting in the hospice with someone who's terminal. It's very hard to see where there's hope. It's very hard to understand. What is God's plan the only place we can look is not to these circumstances and not to these, this, this thing that we're experiencing in the moment. But we look to this objective, historical reality that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again. And because of that, we can cling to hope. Because of that, we know that our suffering now is a part of the glory that is to come. Join with Christ. Because He's shown us that this is God's pattern. 
Our hope in the future glory is certain. And our hope in the present time allows us to maintain that hope when otherwise it might be eroded or taken away. Friends, this is why Easter is such good news. The tomb is empty and the glory is certain. But friends, it's not just in understanding God's plan that we find a hope. But the rest of the story tells us that it's more than that. It's that we have the person in the center of that plan as well. Look with me in verse 28 and following. As they're walking along, Jesus has still not revealed himself. They don't understand who he is yet. Um, there's something interesting about the resurrection body and the way that the New Testament describes what Jesus is able to do, where he is fully human and normal in the ways that he eats and walks, and everyone recognizes him clearly as still being a normal human being in a normal body. Yet there are times when it seems that this normal human being body is also in some ways superhuman. It's a whole, it's fascinating to see how the commentators wrestle with this uh, and speculate about it. But what is clear is that he is fully human and yet there's something more than that. And they don't recognize him. So they're going to stop Emmaus for the night. It seems like Jesus might go on. I don't think he really would have because he can't play in here. But they, they invite him, they encourage him to stop, right? So, so he goes in. Um, and they sit down together. And they eat together. And they break bread together. And those of you who know, if you've been here for the last couple of months, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Luke. Luke regularly portrays Jesus as sitting at the table and eating with people. And the beautiful thing about it is that he would do it with everybody. He did it with the proud and arrogant and, and uh, aggressive uh, Pharisees and religious leaders who opposed him. He would do it with the tax collectors and the sinners, the outcasts, the lepers. He would come alongside and invite these people to a table together where he would bring them in and welcome them and invite them to see who he is and to have fellowship with him. It was a very personal, it was a very incarnate reality. Not just a concept, but a person. And when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. Maybe they saw the scars of the Maybe they remembered the Last Supper. Or maybe they just remembered all those times before when they'd seen Jesus break bread and eat with his disciples, with his friends, with strangers. Jesus comes alongside of them. At the end of this long story, where Jesus has already explained all these things about himself, but he hasn't been saying, this is about me. Right? He's been saying so far, oh, this is about Jesus of Nazareth. And then he breaks the bread, and they realize, oh, it's you. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't left us. But you are here with us. Him they did not see was replaced with, and they recognized him. And their hope was restored, 
that Jesus had not abandoned them. And they knew it. They knew him. Did not our hearts burn within us? And the knowledge, not just of the great plan of God, but of the person of Jesus, now risen from the dead, alive, was such good news that they picked up their dinner and ran back to Jerusalem. Whatever it took them all day to get there, they, they turned it around and went all the way back that night, it seems, so that they could give this report. He is alive. We have seen him. And so funny, right? At the very end, they come in and they're like, hey guys, we've got to tell you something. And the disciples, and the eleven of the disciples are like, yeah, we know, he's risen, we've seen him. And they're like, yeah, I know, so do we. And they have this great celebration. Because Jesus is not simply a great plan or a cog or a great cosmic religious work. Jesus isn't just a great teacher whose ideas were recorded. Jesus isn't just a religious founder whose organization continues. But Jesus is a living Savior. And He has set the table of fellowship and invited us to come to Him and find hope. Hope that will never leave us. He has promised that He will never forsake us and He will never leave us. And by His Spirit, this is true until the end of the age when He will return and make the world new. And when we will not only experience the renewal of creation, but in the very center of that is that we will be with Jesus. We sang in one of the hymns earlier about how in heaven when we see Him, we will be filled with such great joy to know that He is ours and we are His forever. And we will sing, and we will sing, and we will sing in joy and in worship and in exaltation, honoring Him and giving praise to Him, filled with the joy that the Savior, the Redeemer of the world, has rescued us. He's inviting us to come. Have you put your hope in Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, we are speaking before your greatness of your love for us. Lord, thank you that you would suffer and die for us so that we might live. And Lord, we know that following you doesn't rescue us from all suffering. In fact, you told us that in this world we will have tribulation. And our hope is secure that you have overcome the world. And Lord, we celebrate this Easter morning the way that you cemented that hope in the reality of the resurrection from the dead. Lord, that we might cling to that unchangeable truth forever. Oh Lord, fill our hearts with hope today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's praise for us.